Good morning. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship together at Faith Community United Methodist Church. On this first Sunday in Lent, we come together to uh, worship our God. I invite you to uh, fill out the attendance pads that are in each of the pews. Pass those along to others that are worshiping uh, beside you this morning. Welcome to those of you worshiping with us online this morning. We're glad that you have joined us for this time of worship. I uh, want to remind you, remind you of a few of our announcements that are in uh, the Air Bulletin insert. Next Sunday is Coins for Missions Sunday, so uh, make sure to gather up your coins this coming week and bring them with you next week for Coins for Missions. Next Sunday is also our family uh, night at the church. Uh, everybody's invited to that, and it's going to be dinner and a mystery. And uh, so you're gonna, it's going to be a fun time. You're going to want to join us for this. You don't need to prepare anything. Just come uh, next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock for our family night for dinner and a mystery. The prayer breakfast, uh, the women's prayer breakfast tickets are on sale out in the narthex. Uh, they were out there this morning, and they'll be out there again after the service and again next Sunday. But next Sunday is going to be your last chance to get them. So don't wait. Get your tickets now for the, the women's prayer breakfast that is happening on Saturday, March 19th. We're going to be having a new member class coming up soon. There are some folks that are ready to join the membership of the church, and I uh, thought that there might be some others that would be interested, so I'm just making it known to you that there is an opportunity uh, if you are interested in membership uh, with, with Faith Community Church. There's an opportunity on Monday, March 21st at 5.30 in the evening. Uh, just come for this orientation time to find out about membership, learn more about the church, and uh, prepare for being received as new members of this church. You can contact me to let me know if you want to sign up for that or if you have any questions about it. I do want to mention our Lenten offering. You have these uh, special envelopes in your bulletins. This is for our Lenten offering, which goes to Vacation Bible School. And uh, the announcement about that is in your bulletin, our goal for, for raising money, it, it takes about $25 per child. And last year we had about 100 children here, so that means we're, we're needing to raise about $2,500. And uh, so your opportunity through Lent is to uh, contribute to that special offering. I would just remind you as you contribute to that special Lenten offering to not take that away from your regular tithes and offerings to the church. We do depend upon those regular tithes and offerings for uh, everything else that goes on here. And so uh, please be faithful in keeping up with your regular tithes and offerings. This is an opportunity to go above and beyond that uh, to reach out to the children of this community through Vacation Bible School. And we are celebrating the Sacrament of Communion this morning. Uh, hopefully you picked up one of these communion kits on your way in. They're out in the narthex. If you didn't get one, you can go out in the narthex and get one. Uh, this is for communion at the end of the service. And then uh, I just want to mention a word about our closing hymn following communion. It's an old Charles Wesley hymn. It's one of my absolute favorites. The, uh, the words are just wonderful. The, the music is great. I will admit, though, that it's not the easiest hymn to sing. And um, the reason I mention that is because I use this hymn in one of my previous appointments, and the people there told me, don't ever pick that hymn again. <laughs> but you all are much better singers than they are. So I'm trusting that you can handle it. Uh, Carol tells me it's been sung here a couple of times before, uh, but just in case, I'm going to leave my microphone on uh, to lead the singing as we sing that at the end of the service, so those worshiping online might want to turn your volume, volume down at that time. But uh, I, I, I trust that, uh, that you'll be blessed by, by both the words and the music of that hymn. Everything that we do this morning is to God's glory, and so I invite us to be in a spirit of worship uh, as we offer ourselves to God in worship, will you stand and join in the call to worship? Good morning. Please join me, with me in the call to worship. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Let us, Let us worship, worship God. God. Now, please remain standing and join with me in our opening hymn, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast.
And please join with me in our opening prayer. Spirit above all spirits, reveal to us in the faithfulness of Jesus and in the testimony of our ancestors in the faith. Keep us from temptations that block our worship and silence our witness. Inspire us to share both bread and meaning, to worship with pure motives, to serve without need for recognition or reward, that your name may be glorified and your will be done among us and through us. Amen. Our prayer hymn, you may be seated, and our prayer hymn is Take Time to Be Holy. Lord, we come together in this time, in this place, this set-aside time, this set-aside place, this holy time and place. We are taking this time to be holy, to be in your presence, to be touched by your spirit, to get away from all of the other uh, busyness and distractions of this world and to realize that we are yours, that you are our God, that you have laid your claim upon us, that you have made us your holy people. And so may we take this time to be holy, and not just this time of worship, but throughout the week, may we set aside time to be reminded of our holiness in you. We know that on our own we are anything but holy. We are sinners. We go astray so often. And that's why, Lord, that we need you to call us back to yourself, to remind us of who we truly are in you. Lord, we know that there are so many in this world who are not holy, that don't even strive for holiness, that strive only for their own interests, their own wants, powers, and control. And we know, Lord, that sometimes that, that gets played out on a world stage, leading to things like war. And so we pray for those who are the victims of that war. We pray this morning especially for the people in Ukraine we ask for your protection upon them. We ask for strength and courage within them. We ask for faithfulness. We ask for freedom and democracy to continue in this world, Lord. And for those powers here at home that would 
seek to do us in. We pray for our own protection. We pray for our own courage and strength to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for truth. Lord, work through each one of us individually. Work through our church to shine that light of truth in this community and in this world. Bring others to know the truth of the gospel. Bring others to salvation in Jesus Christ and strengthen us in our own faith that we might continue in that walk day by day by the power of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We continue to worship God through the giving of our tithes and offerings as the ushers wait upon us. join me in the prayer of dedication. From the abundance entrusted to us, we offer up the best we can give. Guide our use of this precious trust that it may be spent in ways you choose, in places where you would send us, for the sake of people among whom you wish to dwell. May we bear witness to your abiding love, not only with money, but with dedicated lives. Allow us to be instruments of assurance and compassion in our homes and wherever our journeys lead. Amen. Please be seated.
Our scripture lesson comes from Daniel 8, verses 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar... Man, I started off... Already started this long section off rough here. Let's try it again. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me at first. In the vision I was looking and saw myself in Susa, the capital, in the province of Elam, and I was by the river Ulai. I looked up and saw a ram standing beside the river. It had two horns, both horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. All beasts were powerless to withstand it, and no one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became strong. As I was watching, a male goat appeared from the west, coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a horn between its eyes. It came toward the ram with the two horns that I had seen standing beside the river, and it ran at it with savage force. I saw approaching the ram. It was enraged against it and struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. It threw the ram down to the ground, and it trampled upon it, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, But at the height of its power, the great horn was broken, and in its place there came up four prominent horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the host of heaven. It threw down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trampled on them. Even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly, It took the regular burnt offering away from him and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of wickedness, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground, and it kept prospering in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled. And he answered him, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The word of God for the people of God. In chapter 8, the book of Daniel takes another bit of a turn. 
It's not as dramatic as the turn in chapter 7. We saw there that the focus of the book moved from stories of the past to visions of the future. Here in chapter 8, the focus on visions continues, but with some differences. For one thing, the language is different. Chapters 2 through 7 of Daniel were written in the Aramaic language, whereas chapter 1 was written in Hebrew. In chapter 8, the writing goes back to Hebrew. The most common suggestion for why the change in language is that the earlier chapters were delivered as a message to the whole world, hence a language that all people in all parts of the world understood, whereas from here on out the message is only to the chosen people and what they specifically will endure. I don't agree with that interpretation, that explanation. The, the entire book has to do with the chosen people and what they specifically will have to endure, and all of Scripture is given as a message to the whole world. I can't say precisely why the language changes. I can say, though, that chapter 7 had much in common with chapters 2 through 6. We already saw last week how the dream that Daniel had of the four beasts corresponded with the dream Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. There's also the fact that chapter 7 specifically says that Daniel received those visions in a dream, just as Nebuchadnezzar had received his vision in a dream. And there's the mention that Daniel was terrified by his dream, just as Nebuchadnezzar had been terrified by his dream. Starting with chapter 8, there's no more mention of dreams. Daniel does not receive this vision while sleeping. The, the vision here appears to be more of an ecstatic experience, being caught up in the spirit rather than a dream given in the night. Daniel says that he looked in the vision and saw himself in Susa, the capital, in the province of Elam by the river Ulai. Susa was the capital of Persia. Ulai was a man-made canal that ran through that city. The interesting thing about that is that this vision was given in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Remember, King Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. The Medes had not yet conquered Babylon at the time this vision was given. Persia was still foreign and enemy territory at the time that this vision was given. There's no way that Daniel could have been could have traveled there on his own, by his own will. Yet in the vision, he found himself in the capital of the empire that was yet to come. Whether he was transported there physically by the Holy Spirit or, or whether it was a part of the vision that he saw himself there, even though bodily he was still in Babylon, there's no way of knowing for sure. Interpreters have debated that point back and forth. It really doesn't matter to the message of the vision. Whether Daniel was in Susa bodily or in spirit, the reason he was in Susa is because the vision had to do with things that were yet to come in the kingdoms that were yet to come. Remember in chapter 7, he had a dream of four beasts representing four kingdoms, the first of which was Babylon, the kingdom he was currently in. That part of the dream had to do with events that had already been fulfilled. Here in chapter 8, Babylon is completely gone from the scene. There are only two kingdoms represented in this vision rather than four, namely the two that were next in line, the second and third beast, Persia and Greece. And there's no shaky ground whatsoever in making those associations. The interpretation was given to Daniel himself in the vision. That's another change from chapter 7, whereas in chapter 7 some inferences had to be drawn. Chapter 8 becomes much more explicit in what these visions represent. Verse 20 says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Like I said last week, Media and Persia are represented as one kingdom throughout the book of Daniel. By the time that Babylon fell to the Medes, Persia had already absorbed the kingdom of Media within the kingdom of Persia. That's why in Daniel's vision, the ram had had two horns, and one horn stood higher than the other. Persia reigned supreme. Darius the Mede ruled over the region of Babylonia under the auspices of King Darius, or, or King Cyrus of Persia. Hence, the two horns, the, the kings of Media and Persia, atop the one ram who is the Median Persian Empire. Verse 21 says, The male goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is its first king. The Bible couldn't be any more explicit 
than that in interpreting itself. The great horn of the goat is Alexander the Great, the same as was represented by the leopard in chapter 7 because of the great speed with which he conquered the world. In this vision, Daniel sees the goat coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Again, a reference to the great speed of the conquest. Verse 8, Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, but at the height of its power the great horn was broken, and in its place there came up four prominent horns toward the four winds of heaven. Verse 22 explains, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Indeed, following the untimely death of Alexander the Great, the kingdom was divided into four regions, Macedonia and Greece ruled by Cassander, Thrace and Asia Minor ruled by Antagonus, Seleucus I over Syria and the east, and Ptolemy I over Egypt and North Africa. It's these last two, the, the Seleucid kingdom of Syria and the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, that very quickly become the focus of the rest of this vision. In verse 9, Daniel writes, Out of one of them, that is, out of one of the four horns, came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Over time, the eastern kingdom of the Seleucids and the southern kingdom of the Ptolemies became the two dominant forces. And situated right in between the two was the Holy Land. The Holy Land is is what Daniel calls in his vision the beautiful land. Originally controlled by the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Seleucids ended up going to war for its control, and that control was finally won by, by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV. Since the Bible tells us that the four horns represent the four kingdoms divided in the wake of Alexander the Great, it's easy to tell from history who this little horn is. It is Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He became powerful towards the south, toward the east, and he took over the beautiful land, the holy land. Antiochus IV had had the goal of of uniting the entire area under his reign, using Greek culture and Greek religion as the glue to hold it all together. He referred to himself as Epiphanes, a Greek word meaning God manifest. He claimed himself to be the Greek god Zeus in human form. In addition to instituting Greek religion throughout the land, Antiochus sought to destroy all other religions. He struck out harshly at the Jewish religion especially. He outlawed the practice of circumcision. He destroyed all the copies of the Torah that his people could get their hands on. He made it punishable by death to possess a copy of the Torah. He placed an image of Zeus inside the Jerusalem temple. And he ordered that all the sacrifices made in the temple would be made to Zeus rather than to Yahweh. Knowing that Pigs were considered unclean animals to the Jews. He even had pigs slaughtered on the altar to Zeus, completely desecrating the Jerusalem temple. This is what Daniel saw in verses 11 and 12 of his vision. It took the regular burnt offerings away and overthrew the place of the sanctuary. The host was given over to it along with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground. In Daniel's vision, he heard a holy one ask another holy one, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary to the host to be trampled? The answer came, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That answer, 2,300 evenings and mornings, is a confounding one. In Daniel, much is made of the numbers seven and three and a half as significant periods of time. Over and over we hear from Daniel about a period of seven times. Seven what is not always clear, seven weeks, seven years. We'll see that again next week in chapter nine. But the time period here is is close to that, but far enough different that it's obviously not talking about the same thing. If you take this verse to mean 2,300 days, that would be just a little over six years. Most interpreters agree, though, that the number here has to be cut in half. The regular burnt offerings were sacrificed at the temple twice a day, morning and evening. 
since the question is about how long the sacrifices will be stopped, the answer given in the vision, 2,300 evenings and mornings, means 2,300 regular burnt offerings will be missed. In other words, 1,150 days, just slightly over three years. And that is, in fact, how long the temple was desecrated under the terrible reign of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The Jews rose up in battle against those who were desecrating the temple and attempting to wipe out their religion. Led by a family of Jewish warriors named the Maccabees, the Jews were able to defeat their foreign invaders, recapture Jerusalem away from the Seleucids, cleanse and rededicate the temple. Just about three years after Antiochus IV had desecrated the temple with the image of Zeus and the sacrifice of pigs, after 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices had been missed, the temple was cleansed, sacrifices resumed. In the interpretation of the prophecy given at the end of the chapter in relation to the death of the little horn, it says, he shall be broken and not by human hands. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, although his armies were defeated by the Maccabean revolt, he was not killed in battle. He died suddenly of a disease that was probably cholera. He was broken, but not by human hands, but by God. So that's the history behind Daniel 8, but there's much more to Daniel 8 than simply world history. As you read through this vision, you see that this is not just about a war that would be played out on the world stage and in Jerusalem. There is a war within the spiritual realm going on here as well. Verse 10, referring to the little horn, says, it grew as high as the host of heaven. It threw down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trampled on them. In a worldly context, that refers to Antiochus trampling upon the faithful and killing those who stood against him. But this is not told only in a worldly context. The the image of a heavenly host being thrown to the earth, along with some of the stars, brings to mind the rebellion of Satan against God, in which Jesus referred to fallen angels as stars thrown out of heaven. Verse 24 says, he shall grow strong in power, but not of his own power. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was not just a powerful man who conquered the world because of his own strength. It was the force of evil. It was the power of Satan that was at work within him. Verse 11 says, even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly. Against the prince of the host. Who is this prince of the host? Well, this is a battle that Daniel sees playing out in heaven. The host is the heavenly host, the army of God's angels. The king of the host, of course, would be God. The prince of the host, then, must be Christ. Once again, Daniel sees a vision of Christ, this time with a worldly ruler acting arrogantly against him. Who is the one who wages an arrogant war against the Christ? Indeed, this worldly ruler is an image of Antichrist in many ways. Now remember, as I said before, the Bible tells us there are many Antichrists. To say that Antiochus IV Epiphanes is an image of the Antichrist is not to say that he This one man of history is the ultimate one to rise up against God and Christ at the end of time. It's to say that he represents who Antichrist is. He does all the things that an Antichrist does. He acts arrogantly against Christ. He builds himself up as God. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the only one who is God in human form. By calling himself Epiphanies, God made manifest, Antiochus was quite literally trying to take the place of Christ. He directed worship away from God by, and to himself by stopping the temple sacrifices and replacing them with sacrifices to Zeus. Another comparison to Antichrist is the source of his power. When Jesus was in his 
human body, he did not rely on his own power, but on the power of God within him. And so we are told that the little horn grew strong, but not by his own power. Antichrists in human form are given over to the power of Satan. The writing that we find in the second half of Daniel, as well as in the book of Revelation, is referred to as Apocalypse. One of the things that apocalyptic literature shows us is that the struggles and the battles and the wars that we face here on earth are a shadow of the war that goes on in the spiritual realm. There is no such thing as a purely earthbound war. War, destruction, murder, these are above all spiritual realities. They are an invitation to the spiritual powers of evil that vie against God, namely the devil. An invitation to the devil to enter into human affairs. They are an attempt by the evil one to drive a wedge between us and God such that the faithful are led away. War is terrifying in all of its forms, but never forget the real battle being waged against us is a spiritual one designed to lead us away from God to our eternal destruction. But just as there are spiritual forces waging war against us, Apocalypse also shows us that we have the powers of heaven battling on our behalf. Verses 15 and 16, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it, then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man. And I heard a human voice by the Uli calling, Gabriel, help this man understand this vision. We've seen before in Daniel this one having the appearance of a man. We know that is the Christ. Daniel was allowed to see him in human form, even though he had not yet come in the flesh as Jesus. Daniel heard the voice of the Christ calling to another heavenly being, Gabriel. Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. These may very well be the same two holy ones that Daniel heard speaking to one another back in verse 13 when he heard one ask how long the temple would be desecrated and he heard the other one answer. If so, it was Gabriel asking the question and Christ giving the answer. The vision there isn't very explicit about that, but it is quite explicit here. The angel that gives the interpretation of the vision to Daniel is the angel Gabriel. This is the first time in the entire Bible that an angel is called by name. And because he is, we know that this is the same angel Gabriel who we see in the Gospel of Luke, the story we hear every Advent and Christmas. Gabriel is the name of the angel who appeared to the Virgin Mary to announce to her that she would become pregnant with the Son of God. Here is that same angel 500 years earlier, 500 years before the conception of Jesus, 500 years before that pronouncement to Mary, here he is having a conversation with the Son of God in heaven. And in addition to Christ and Gabriel, there is a whole host in this vision of Daniel, a heavenly host, an army of angels. They are standing guard. They are watching over the faithful. That is perhaps the most important aspect of this vision for us today. Yes, we are up against the forces of evil in this world, but we have the powers of heaven, a host of angels fighting for us. And directing them all, the prince of the host is the Son of God himself. The final verse of the chapter says this, So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel was overwhelmed to the point of being literally sickened by this vision. It disturbed him to his very soul to see 
the terror that was going to come upon God's people from the worldly kingdoms that were about to arise. In this particular vision, he wasn't given a vision of the final victory, just a picture of the battle that was yet to come. The scope of this vision was limited to the Median Persian Empire and the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and particularly the persecution that would come against God's people and the desolation that would come to God's temple in the latter days of the Seleucid reign. The victory would be won by the Son of Man. That, that was left hanging in the future. Daniel had been given a, a glimpse of that in, in his previous vision a couple years earlier, but this one was more limited in scope. No wonder he was overcome and sickened by what he saw. And no wonder we, too, are often overwhelmed and sickened by the wars that we see waged in our own time. And the way that those who stand for truth and righteousness are so often trampled underfoot. For how long, the angel asked in the vision. And we ask the same question. For how long? Even having heard the answer, and having been given the interpretation of it, Daniel still didn't completely understand the vision. He was still overcome by it. We can't completely understand it either, at least not yet. We can study it, we can pray about it, we can learn from it. But sometimes we're just caught up in the middle of it. Left to wonder when and how it will all end. But having wallowed in his sickness for some days, Daniel says he arose and went about the king's business. Remember who the king was at that time. Belshazzar, the wicked pagan king of Babylon who made a mockery of God and who would eventually desecrate the temple vessels and be judged and defeated because of it. The king whose kingdom would soon fall to another and be turned to dust. Daniel went about doing that king's business. Why? Because that's the work God had given him to do in his day. And that can be an example for us too. The vision that Daniel had of the battle going on in the spiritual realm and what would play out on earth over the next several hundred years, it was grandiose and overwhelming. But it was not given to him to accomplish it. The battle would be fought by Christ and Gabriel and a whole host of angels and by a whole host of God's faithful people on earth who would dedicate their lives to him and continue to stand for truth and justice and righteousness even in the midst of the most terrible danger. Daniel's part was to go about his business faithfully and pass along the message. In a very real sense, that is our part in this grand battle, too. To go about the business we've been given, to continue to live faithfully in the midst of the most terrible evil, to continue to pass along the truth to our own generation and to the generations that are to come, and to trust that the heavenly forces are fighting for us and that they will indeed win the battle. And in a very real sense, that should be much easier for us than it was for Daniel. Because we have seen the battle won on the cross of Jesus and the victory declared once and for all in his resurrection. Daniel was only given visions of what was to come. He got to see and to hear the one like a son of man, the prince of the host, the Christ. But all those visions were 500 years before Christ would come to earth in Jesus and win the decisive victory against Satan. Daniel had to take it on faith that good would win over evil. We don't just have to take it on faith, we have seen the victory won in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. What Daniel could only hope for has been fulfilled for us. 
It is that fulfillment of the promise that we celebrate every Sunday when we come together on the Lord's Day, the day of His resurrection, to declare that He is Lord and God and that the victory is already His. It is that fulfillment of the promise that we celebrate every time we participate in Holy Communion, declaring that the breaking of His body, the shedding of His blood, has saved us for eternity. We don't have to go out and win some grand sweeping victory over the powers of darkness around the world. We simply have to know and to trust that He has already won. Give our lives over to Him. Live according to His light doing the work that he has given us to do in our day, in faith and in love. Amen. I invite you now to join with me in the prayer of the great thanksgiving as we prepare to receive the sacrament of Holy Communion. Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You brought all things into being and called them good. From the dust of the earth you formed us into your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. When rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, you bore up the ark on the water, saved Noah and his family, and made covenant with every living creature on earth. When you led your people to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, you gave us your commandments and made us your covenant people. When, you, when your people forsook your covenants, your prophet Elijah fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and on your holy mountain he heard your still small voice. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. When you gave him to save us from our sins, your spirit led him in the wilderness where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for his ministry. When he suffered and died on a cross for our sin, you raised him to life, presented him alive to the apostles during 40 days, and exalted him at your right hand. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. And now when we, your people, prepare for the yearly feast of Easter, you lead us to repentance for sin and the cleansing of our hearts that during these 40 days of Lent we may be gifted and graced to reaffirm the covenant made with you through Christ. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples, and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.
invite you now to take the bread. The body of Christ broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of him. juice, the cup of salvation poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ, take and drink in remembrance of him. Oh Lord, we thank you for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. We thank you for that grace that you poured out for us on the cross for that sacrifice that cleanses all sins, that brings us back to the Father. And we thank you for that resurrection that gives us the promise of eternal life with you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to continue to dwell within us, empower us, inspire us to holy living as your holy children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to stand as you're able for our closing hymn, which is number 363 in the hymnals. And can it be that I should gain? We will sing verses 1, 3, and 4.
his mercy all. He has won the victory for us on the cross and in his resurrection. So arise, go forth, and follow him in all things. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.